Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Political editor Pat Leahy is here with me and I'm very delighted to welcome a distinguished guest. Uh, we've talked several times over screens, but Professor Brendan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania is here in the studio. Hi, Brendan. Good afternoon. Great to see you, Hugh. We are here because the, the Irish Times' is North and South series, which is in association with Aaron's, which is the project that you're involved in in connection with the Royal Irish Academy. It's all rather a mouthful, but it's a very large, uh, very extensive project, which we're, which we're all involved in, including Pat as well, taking the temperature of questions of nationality and political structures on the island of Ireland. Tell us what Aaron's is. ARIN stands for Analyzing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy uh, and the University of Notre Dame, and they have co-funded the series with the Irish Times, where we focus on public opinion, North and South, on constitutional futures, including questions attached to unification. You've been doing it for a while. The Irish Times has been involved for a while. And part of the you know the benefit of that is that we're starting perhaps to measure views over a longer period of time and see what changes, if anything, are taking place. Our plan is to have some stable repertoire of questions that we ask annually. And um, sometimes we will have novel questions um, where we don't expect shifts in opinion to occur fast. Mm. We'll, we'll, dis- we'll separate those questions by a year or two. So this time around, we have some stable questions from last time, but we've also got some fresh and very interesting material. Well, let's start with the fresh and interesting material, shall we? I was looking at one this weekend. It was slightly I was taken aback by it. It's sort of interesting, which was a, a an idea, I suppose you could say, for to change the structure of the Irish presidency in United Ireland and have a vice president and some requirements for that for that position. Yes, the the idea we had was we reflected last year on the fact that quite a lot of Irish citizens, despite the existence of the Good Friday Agreement, don't like the idea of um, Northern Protestants in future being British citizens as well as Irish citizens. So we wanted to test the willingness of the South in particular to be accommodating on possible institutional innovations. So we proposed the idea that the president to be a valid candidate in future would have to have a vice presidential candidate who was also a British and Irish citizen. We did not go into details about whether the vice president would have any significant powers, whether he would succeed or she, uh, whether they would succeed the president if the president died in office or there was a resignation or the president was impeached and removed from office. We didn't do any of those details. We just wanted to hone in on the idea of the acceptability of a president with dual affiliations. I think if I might jump in at that point, um, is that the purpose of those questions was not just on the surface to gauge people's opinion of this particular idea, though clearly it it serves to do that. But there's also the deeper idea of probing, as Brennan says, particularly Southern willingness to move it all. Because one of the things that we discovered in the first iteration of this series last year was that while there was um, an overwhelming support for the idea of a united Ireland in the south and a very large majority in favour of it if it came to uh, a vote, there was a much sketchier engagement with what it might mean. And certainly for a large number of people in the south, there was either an unwillingness to uh, consider what changes the south should make 
to make a United Ireland a success are a lack of engagement with that idea prior to... So some of, some of those questions were, were what we put into the bracket of, of symbolism, things like the flag and the anthem. And some of them were pocketbook issues, like how much you're prepared to pay. Yeah, sure. And I mean, the unification of two separate political entities is clearly something, an operation of immense complexity. And it goes across a whole range of different areas, some of which are economic, some of which would be political, constitutional and that. And I suppose the idea behind this set of questions and that is just to probe that a little bit, both in its, in its those particular questions that we put, but also the, the wider notion of the South engaging with what it might have to do if, because I suppose there's two questions about a united Ireland. One is, might it happen? And the second, I suppose, is, might it be a success? Sure. So we've started, you know, when I say we, most people started with this very simplistic framing, which is a united Ireland will come about or will probably come about should a majority of the people of Northern Ireland uh, vote for that under the terms agreed in, 19, in 1998. Um, but there's the bigger question of, well, first of all, will people in the Republic vote for it? And indeed, under what circumstances are they more or less likely to do so? Before I answer that, may I go back to the presidency question just to, to finish off the answer on that, if you don't mind? Sure. So what we were interested in, as Pat correctly said, is uh, willingness to contemplate significant change. And we found that um, a significant proportion of the republic's population didn't like this idea. Uh, a significant proportion did like the idea. But for the first time, we carried a new category. Uh, and instead of agree, disagree, and don't know, we added the category, you could tick this box or tell the um, interviewer that this was your preference. It said, uh, I would like to hear more about this idea before forming a view. And not surprisingly, a significant number of people in the South and the North ticked that box. So we interpret that as indicating willingness to consider the idea. So if you add up the total who agreed and disagreed, uh, they fall less than 60% together. Mm. So the proportion in the don't know and willing to hear more about the idea before forming a view uh, is a very significant section of the electorate. So we interpret that as a willingness in principle to be flexible. And interestingly, Sinn Féin North supporters agreed with the idea more than they disagreed, whereas Sinn Féin uh, voters in the South were the other way around. I suppose if I were to be devil's advocate here, it's part of my role, when I saw that question, I thought, well, how would, how would I answer that question? And I mean, I think I've said, because we've discussed some of these issues previously, I don't really have any big problems with some of the symbolic issues. And let's look at the pocketbook issues. But there's something about this particular proposal that I dislike for a different reason, which is that I'm a sort of secular re Republican who believes in a Bill of Rights and that everybody's treated equally under the law. And I don't particularly like, you know, sectional positions being allocated to people on the basis of their cultural, religious or, or whatever other identity. So that's a different argument, I suppose, isn't so it, from the green if, versus orange one? If you take that view and you hold it very rigorously, you would tick disagree. Mm -hmm. um, if, however, it's something you're willing to accommodate, then... Um, or discuss, at least. Or discuss, you would tick uh, the other boxes that were available. And I'm actually sure, Hugh, that if we continued this conversation for more than five minutes, you would switch from your ardent integrationist view <laughs> to thinking about how hardline British identifiers 
could be best accommodated in the United Ireland. This is merely one idea of how that. I'm just uh, being a natural be troublemaker here. I mean, that the, is perfectly the, acceptable. The, the, the question that immediately occurs is, what if a, um, somebody with dual citizenship becomes president? Um, that's why I said carefully that we did not elaborate on whether or not the vice president would automatically succeed the president were the presidency to be vacated. That obviously would have to be discussed. What do you make of that question, Pat? I mean, I think that the chances of it being included in an ultimate constitutional settlement may be remote, but as a signifier of Southern willingness to Southern willingness to accommodate the North, I think along with the other questions, we had another question about the powers of the president and vice president possibly under uh, a new or changed constitution to nominate senators. The, the current Taoiseach's 11 would become the president and vice president's 11, uh, 11, which is a fairly involved topic actually to ask people their opinion of. I think they're interesting in and of themselves, but as their, uh, their real function, I think, is to uh, to act as a signifier for southern willingness to accommodate uh, to accommodate some of, some of these kinds of things but, but also but, but also just to finish the point sorry Hugh uh, but also uh, the questions because all the questions are asked in both jurisdictions also looking particularly at the responses of northern Protestants northern unionists to their willingness to engage with the idea of a potential United Ireland. And that's one of the areas where, and, you know, if you were seeing great swings in this data from year to year, if we were, you know, moving from, you know, two to one against in Northern Ireland last year to, uh, you know, to, to 60-40 or 55-45, you would begin to ask hmm. questions. But one of the areas, I think, and uh, I know Brent, Brendan in his analysis pieces, which we should add, were co-written with John Gary and Jamie Powell from uh, from Queen's. But one of the things that the three academics wrote extensively about is that this is one of the significant, I think, shifts this year is this beginning of hardline unionists in the north to engage with the possibility and uh, and adjust their positions. Yes, and that's what we led with, I think, with our news story, wasn't it? It was that question of the irreconcilables, I suppose you could call them, right. in Northern Ireland. L- last year, 32% of Northern Protestants thought the idea of Irish unification was almost impossible to accept. This year, that fell to 23%. Now, that's a significant fall. It's a fall of about a quarter. Uh, how, how to explain that? We can't do it simply on the basis of the data. We'd have to speculate. I suspect more Protestants are recognizing that that's the possible direction of travel. Uh, the protocol is certainly felt that way, uh, particularly by hardline Protestants. It may well be that they think it's a more appropriate answer to give that you'll accept the outcome of a fair referendum uh, than uh, they gave on previous occasions. But I would interpret it uh, as a reasonable signal that uh, we are in a better position than we were last year in terms of people being willing to accept uh, a peaceful transformation. Well, three out of four unionists being prepared to accept it isn't isn't bad, it seems to me, you know. I mean, I know we're, but, we're in the realm of hypothesis. It's actually higher than that, but, you know. Okay. Yeah. Right. But one of, the, one of the, the questions is not so much if there were to be, you know, difficulties in a future United Ireland. They wouldn't be caused by the reasonable 
unionists who are, you know, who, who say they will accept the uh, democratic It'll be the decision. unreasonable ones, is what you're saying. The unreasonable ones. And the fact that they remain a significant minority of unionists, not as big a minority as we identified last year, but a significant minority of unionists. And that is one of the myriad of issues that the people who wish to bring about not just a united ireland but a successful united ireland will have to grapple with and uh, hist- history tells us doesn't it that um it's not just a question when when there's an issue of people uh, people's allegiance being asked to be changed it's not just a question of them being opposed to the overall constitutional dispensation these things often manifest themselves in assertions of conflicting rights i mean the very history of northern ireland tells us this the, the conflict that blew up from the 1960s at the start was certainly not about the constitutional position of northern ireland it was about the internal politics of northern ireland and it's quite possible that that would be something similar that could arise sure. in this instance so the the way we academics interpret this as an increase in the possibility of loser's consent, namely that the Protestant community has shifted its disposition significantly. We'll see if it's sustained. We'll see if it continues in this trajectory in future years. Uh, But this was an unexpected uh, outcome. We had expected, roughly speaking, the, the same kind of response. The reality is, though, is that the underlying reality, the real headline figure, is that we're a very long way away from there being a majority in Northern Ireland for unity. Uh, It depends on your definition of the long run. Um, We've certainly seen... It's when we're all dead. Yes, (laughs) that's that's Keynes. And actually, we have a a question to uh, inside the survey on people's understanding of the short and long run, but we can come back to that later, Hugh. So this year, uh, 30% in the North favour unification compared to 27% last year. Uh, That doesn't quite reach statistical significance because we have a a 3.1% statistical significance test for our data, both in the North and the South. Um, The pro-union position increased very slightly from 50 to 51, again, not statistically significant. Um, The don't knows fell just a little bit. But what I would lay some emphasis on is the shift in priorities among voters north and south. Both north and south, there was an increase in the numbers who thought preparing for the possibility of United Ireland, and in some cases achieving United Ireland, uh, should rise in their their top four priorities. So I think that's significant. Of course, most of the public in uh, the Republic think that housing is the dominant priority, followed by healthcare. In the North, it's healthcare, uh, very much at, at the top of their list of priorities. Nevertheless, um, preparing for United Ireland has risen up the rankings, so to speak. Do you agree with that, Pat? Do you sense that? No, that's that very clear in the data agenda? that it has moved up. I would add that it still remains fairly far down their priorities, and you can see that not just in our surveys but in other surveys uh, that. That we have, uh, that that we and other people have done on this, there is no sense, you know, in which this is, uh, you know, one of the things that people want to see their government working day and night on. That may change, of course, certainly change from a government's perspective if the next government in the republic is uh, is led by Sinn Fein, for whom it will become. At, uh, uh, a top priority, I think, from their uh, from their first day in uh, in office. But um, I, I think there's no doubt that such movement as we have seen, and again, you would stress that if you're so big movement, you'd be worried about your data. But such movement as we have seen is in uh, is in that 
direction. So there is a direction of travel. Well, I mean, insofar well, we, as we can we, say we, that, we have two, within we have the margin two, of error, so it's very hard. We have yeah. two data points. Yeah, uh, we will see. And um, we have funding definitely for the next uh, two years. Let's hope it'll continue further. So le- uh, let's talk then about that short-term versus versus long-term thing. The, the, the politicians are in the habit of phrasing this in terms of their own lifetime. So it depends how old the politician is. When Leo Varadkar says he, he believes he'll see it in his own lifetime, that's different from somebody in their 60s seeing it. Um, so, so we asked people their perceptions of the long-run economic consequences of Irish unification. And um, we gave them the opportunity to say that they thought there would be short-run costs followed by long-run benefits, um, short-run benefits followed by long-run benefits, short-run costs followed by um, long-run costs, and um, I can't remember what the fourth category is. The other one, definitely the the, the, the remaining logical category. What was interesting there was that most Southerners fell into the category of short-run costs followed by long-run benefits. And uh, among Northern Protestants, uh, the belief was widespread of um, long-run misery, uh, both and uh, accompanied by short-run misery as well. Um, when we asked people their perceptions of the short-run and the long-run, we said this is a, a subjective categorization. How would you code the short-run and how would you code the long-run? Northern Catholics have a shorter short-run, than Northern Protestants, and they have a shorter long term. So they have a rosy view of the economic consequences of unification. Uh, Northern Protestants have a a bleak view. Um, They both perceive a long run, uh, short, costly transition, and they perceive uh, an absence of benefits. Mm. If we then ask the communities who's going to benefit from unification, Uh, The idea of mutual ruin is the uh, uh, preferred option of Northern Protestants. Uh, By contrast, both Northern Catholics and Southerners uh, expect to see um, benefits on both sides of the border. But broadly speaking, if you're a Northerner, you're inclined to think the South will benefit more. And if you're a Southerner, you're inclined to think that the North will benefit more. Um, But what I would pay uh, significant attention to is there's a, a widespread perception that the South favors unification, but in a, a sort of uh, romantic haze. And uh, they're not in favor of spending an extra single euro to accomplish the this goal. This is the perception from the North. From, uh, and uh, around the world. Um, mm. And I, I think what our data allows us to say is that Southerners are aware of the high likelihood of short-run costs but their focus is on long-run benefits. So they need to to be persuaded that the economics of unification works in the long term uh, if they are to remain in the pro-unification camp. We have other uh, interesting data, novel data. We we asked on uh, the question of Ireland's sovereign wealth fund. Uh, Did the public north and south think well of the idea to allocate 10% of the budgetary surplus, if there's a surplus, to a sovereign wealth fund which would be dedicated to paying the costs of a possible United Ireland. And if it didn't happen, the funds could be repurposed to other causes. Now, unsurprisingly, for Northerners, they're not... Would you like some free money? They were asked. They're, they're in favour of it, particularly if they're Northern Catholics and Northern Sinn Féin voters. But... 
significantly in the Republic, um, their support for the idea or for examining it further. Remember that option I, I mm. told you about earlier. So I think this suggests that Southerners are at least willing to put some money aside for potential short-run costs of, of unification. And this is a fresh result. Nobody's got it before. And um, I'd like to congratulate my Aaron's colleagues on putting this question <laughs> to the public. I thought that was one of the interesting um, trends in this year's survey uh, as well. I would caution, however, against reading too much into it before we have several more years' data for the reason that it takes place within a particular context. Incidentally, it's one of those questions that works on its merits, I think. You know, it gives us people's opinions on this specific question, but it also is a sort of a window into wider, um, uh, into, into their views on the subject more widely. But as I say, it takes place in the particular economic context of the South at the moment, which is extraordinarily fortuitous at present and may not, if our history teaches us anything there, it teaches us that that may not uh, endure. And if it does change in the future, it may change quite quickly. And I think that that question asked in a different economic context in the South might evince a different answer, but that's one I would, for the I would qualify Pat's response in one way. The question very emphatically emphasizes budgetary surpluses. If there's no surplus, if there's a deficit, nothing will be put into the sovereign wealth fund. So it's only uh, an activity which would be engaged in were there to be budgetary surpluses. But the unification, were it to happen, would happen in all con contexts. As yes, in for the, of course. It would have to be paid for right. so whether there was a surplus or, or absolutely. not. That's my slight caution oh, on that, it. That's and perfectly fair caution. Um, while there's hay, maybe it's time to cut the hay. Uh-huh. Hold that thought just for a moment. We're going to take a, a quick break. So just before the break, you were talking about making hay. Um, you didn't say while the sun shines, because clearly not shining at the moment anyway, uh, Brendan, although economically so Pat was saying I, it is. I agree entirely with Pat's general point that um, attitudes of um, optimism, pessimism, degrees of responsibility will shift depending upon the performance of the Irish economy, north and south. One of the questions we posed to voters was explicitly, if you'll forgive the academic phrase, egocentric. We asked them what they thought uh, their vote might be if unification would lead them to being €4,000 a year better off and what they thought their view would be if they were €4,000 a year worse off. Now, unsurprisingly, if they're made better off, they're more likely to support unification. If they're made worse off, they're less likely. But what was interesting for us is the lack of symmetry in response. So Southern voters have a reduced disposition to favour unification, but it's not equivalent to their enthusiasm for unification when um, they're told that they're all going to be better off individually. So this reinforces the point we made earlier about their willingness to take some short-run pain for, for long-run gain. Northern Protestants, by contrast, um, clearly have their gut instincts reinforced if they're likely to lose uh, €4,000 a year. And they're also likely to believe that 
unification is only going to benefit Northerners. So those who have a strategy for reunification, they have to, they have very difficult tasks ahead of them. They have to persuade Southerners as much as possible that there, there may be short-run costs, but there will be long-run gains. And they have to somehow persuade Northern Catholics in particular that they're going to be better off in a united Ireland because that category of Northern Catholics who favour the Union is one-fifth of the Northern um, Catholic population. By contrast, only 4% of Protestants in the North currently favour unification. Yeah, some people have expressed surprise to me about that. I have to say I wasn't surprised by it. I've kind of, my, my knowledge of the North, I always thought you know, there, was a, there was a reasonable minority of the people from a Catholic nationalist background who, who would vote to keep the Union. And that number yeah. hasn't shifted since last year. Yeah, uh, it's gone very, the Protestant support for United Ireland has gone down very slightly. Um, the position of Catholic Unionists has remained stable. Mm. I suppose one of the things that is difficult to get under the hood of is these these different sets of homo economicus, if you like. You know, will I be better off or will I not? Is that what drives decisions? Yes, it does, but it's not the only thing. And it seems to me uh, to be the case, particularly for Northern Irish Protestants who, without getting too cliched about it, sometimes feel like a people under siege and therefore have a sense of a, of a, of a siege mentality and an identity that, that that might just, you know, be more powerful for them in terms right. of the relationship so, between those two things. So you remember I used the phrase egocentric question mm. for you and your family. The what? studio is no stranger to egocentricism. <laughs> I, <can assure> you. <laughs> I, I think you should demand an immediate apology. Um, talking I, about himself. I, I, I think... I think um, the opposite of egocentric voting is sociotropic voting. What I'd like us to consider in future years is to contrast egocentric dispositions with those who might vote for unification because they think it's good for the country uh, or vote for the union in the north because it's good for the north Mm -hmm. uh, just to see what the discrepancies are between those positions. So if some people are saying I'm less likely to vote for unification because I believe I'll be personally worse off, they might at the same time think that in the long run we're all going to be better off and it's a good decision to to endorse and they might... um, be driven in that in that direction. So we can't assume that, that there are obviously some pocketbook voters, but most people have dual levels of, of thought. Uh, sometimes they're calculating the materials, sometimes they're thinking about the symbolic, sometimes they've got a, uh, a very um, complex mix of the two. We, I mean, we should also say that that particular data shows us that, that there is a large body of voters for whom... I suppose sovereignty trumps economics yes. Uh, uh, yes. In, uh, in a way, though I suspect they are unlikely to be the decisive cohort in any right. referendum. It's not that they are unimportant and particularly on the unionist side, and we've talked about that earlier, but their votes are probably not going to shift because the sovereignty question is a binary one of its nature. And they're probably, they would, I would guess, a disproportionately large amount of the people who are still ir- irreconcilable. To a constitutional choice, yeah, yeah. So that irreconcilable element is very much tied in with a quest- questions of national identity and and holding fast to sovereignty. Right. Yeah. Do you want to go to questions of national identity or yes. to the question of the constitution? There was, that, there was one that jumped out at me about national identity. I just thought it was interesting, and of course, we can't go back in time and find out would this have been different five years ago or even before Brexit. But the um, how few people from a Northern Protestant Unionist background think of themselves as European. 
compared to other people on the island. Mm. Indeed. Um, so the European identity is quite strongly entrenched in the South, according to our data, and less so among Northern Protestants. What's also interesting is we, for the first time, we gave people scalar choices. So you you don't simply tick a box on whether you regard yourself as British or Irish or European or Northern Irish. You tick a box on a scale. You know, if you really feel strongly Irish, you tick 10. If you feel zero British, you, t- you tick zero. Um, so we're b- both able to assess intensity of identity and the willingness of people to endorse more than one collective identity. And what's interesting is compared to previous surveys, uh, the rankings are in the north. Northern Irish identity is ticked by about 52%, uh, if my memory is correct. About 48% identify as Irish, and I think 46% as British. Now, they, that doesn't add up to 100% because you've got uh, the uh, ability to, to choose among, among mm-hmm. the options. Which reflects the reality of how people's identities actually work. Indeed. Now, what we don't have before 2000 is questionnaires which ask people about did they have a Northern Irish identity. So we don't, we can't tell immediately whether that's a novel identity, a product of the 1998 agreement, or whether it's there, been there all the time but not asked. So for Northern Catholics, it could just be a, ge- a geographic expression. Mm. They tick Northern Irish implicitly with a lowercase n. For Unionists, Northern Irish could be, it's a unit in the United Kingdom, that's what they identify with. But we are able to say, on the basis of our data, that the Northern Irish identity is most strongly endorsed by Alliance voters, SDLP voters, and Ulster Unionist Party voters. So it appears to be um, the identity choice of those who are more moderate. And therefore, unlike the European identity, it offers some bridging opportunities in the period ahead. Uh, if significant proportions of the public can endorse uh, the Northern Irish identity, maybe that will work as a bridging identity. But only if the Northern Irish identity was accommodated and Indeed. explicitly nurtured within the new unified political entity. Or if right? there was a good right. set of offers on the table to appeal to those people who hold that identity, because that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? I mean, I guess if you were to design it, you would design a multifaceted outreach, parts economic, parts constitutional, parts cultural, parts... Keep keep Brendan very busy. (laughs) (laughs) I I do find that fascinating, even the idea that Northern Irish, you know, there could be people, you know, there are people in Inishowen who are definitely in the northern part of Ireland. Indeed. But as we know, the, 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 very, the very words Northern Ireland are sort of disowned by Sinn Féin, for example. And the attitude towards those things would presumably be different among DUP voters. I know there's something that, that you remarked on previously when we were talking about these issues, which was that um, from the point of view of capturing that that centre ground, those alliance voters, those more moderate uh, UUP voters, um, the party that's least well equipped to do that is Sinn Féin. That certainly would be the the current evidence. And if you look at Sinn Féin identifiers, uh, they're strongly in the strongly Irish identifying camp. There are uh, Sinn Féin voters who identify as Northern Irish, but lots of them are strong Irish identifiers. And you won't be... Uh, surprised to discover that 
lots of DUP voters give 10 to their British identity, and they're followed by traditional unionist voice in, the, in that way. So you might, on a, on a very simple model that, that I'd be reluctant completely to confirm, Sinn Féin represents the Irish identity, DUP represents the British identity, the centrist parties represent the Northern Irish identity. Mm. What does that mean for how this process, Pat, it's going to play out in Irish politics, both north and south, do you think, over the next few years, whether or not Sinn Féin is in government, because we know that if Sinn Féin is in government, it will turbocharge some of the processes. Uh, it's already said it, it will do that. But how do you see that that playing out? Because one of the things that I think you capture this year and you'll be capturing it over the next while is that there's lots of things going on in the world, but one of the things that is happening is there is more debate on this subject and people are starting to think about it a bit more. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's part of the reason why you see it creeping up the order of political priorities that we discussed earlier. I mean, I think that the rise of this, and, and Brendan's correct, of course, when he says we don't have kind of comparative data, but the, the prominence that we see of the Northern Irish identity is, I, I, I think, part of the reason behind that is just the decline of the tribal duopoly. That is, and Northern Ireland is now very much a place of three minorities rather than, uh, you know, rather than a unionist majority and uh, and a Catholic nationalist minority. And I think, you know, the, 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 to step back to the broad picture that we have seen from these two surveys now is that one while, you know, certain constitutional preferences, North and South, in terms of the top line results, are settled for for now. You know, if there's a referendum in the foreseeable future in the North, it'll be uh, uh, it'll be a no. If there's one in the South, it'll be uh, it'll be yes. D- but there's d- an awful lot depending on how the don't knows break down. Yeah, there, there's an awful lot going on be beneath the surface of that. One of them is the decline of the unionist majority. Majority, the rise of the uh, of of the rise of the Northern Ireland identity, particularly, I think, amongst younger voters who do not see politics purely through the prism of the constitutional question. And that, I suppose, and I, I've made the point in here on more than one occasion, Hugh, that it, it, it seems to me, it's one of the reasons why I find the DUP's current approach so difficult to understand, because it seems to me that the strongest argument for maintaining the constitutional status quo would be a Northern Ireland that actually works. And yet you have this paradox of the DUP, the most strongly unionist party, home to the most and strong historically devolution, devolutionist as well, is seems determined not to work the, the status quo. Now, maybe there is a political logic to that that is un- uh, uh, that, that that is incomprehensible to my traditionally Fenian intellect, but um, but I I, I I fail to see it. Yeah, there's. I mean, obviously there is what you describe as a paradox. Clearly, there there would appear to be that. It's it's not just the DUP though. It seems to me. I mean, the uh, there was a report came out of the House of Commons last week, which made some recommendations or some suggestions about changing some of the mechanisms in Stormont to make them work a bit better than they've clearly been working over the last while. And the effect of those really would have been to remove the effect of veto, which the two largest parties, the DUP and Sinn Féin, have currently. And to cut a long story short, the DUP said no, 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 as we've heard from them before. And Sinn Féin said nothing much and just didn't seem very enthusiastic. So 
that in a way we may be approaching a situation where those 52% of people, those people in the middle, those people, let's say people who generally don't vote for DUP and Sinn Féin, are being sort of cut out of the of the deal in the, in Northern Ireland at the moment. Well, that's not um, a question directly related to our surveys, um, but I'm, I'm happy to answer it. I think one question that is raised is whether uh, there are agreed procedures for changing the Good Friday Agreement. And here the big debate, um, which I don't think should be a debate, is between those who think the two sovereign governments, as well as a sufficient consensus of the parties in the North, have to agree before there's any serious institutional change. And those who imagine that Strand 1 changes are confined to the agreement of the British government with uh, a Northern majority in favour. And we haven't yet had that uh, clash, but it, it may be coming, um, though I don't think it would happen under a Labour government. It might happen in the last year of, of this Conservative government. Uh, I think any changes that appear to be deliberately targeted at the DUP um, are not likely to uh, produce positive results, nor if they're directly targeted at Sinn Féin. But if they could both agree that they don't veto the formation of a speaker, and mm. a set of deputy speakers. Which is what those proposals involve. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they yeah. just focus on that and they agree something like giving the, the two first ministers the same titles, um, I think they could move towards a, an accommodation. What do you think but, about Pat's point that um, a Northern Ireland that works better, a Stormont that works better, that takes more account perhaps of those people who are not in the DUP or Sinn Féin counts is probably, from a unionist perspective, the strongest bulwark against United Ireland. I think it works both care. ways. If, if Northern Ireland works well, if all parts of the power sharing arrangements inside the North, North and South, East, West, if they work well, it, in my view, will ease the path to a functioning United Ireland and make it more likely that that United Ireland would be one in which Northern Ireland was preserved. On the other hand, if Northern Ireland doesn't work, I think that will speed the likelihood of particularly Northern Catholics uh, being interested in Irish unification, partly for reasons of straightforward economic prosperity and wanting some of the political stability that the South enjoys. So it's not an easy choice for unionists. Some of them do actually argue that if you collaborate in power sharing and the functioning of the protocol as modified by the Windsor Agreement, you are uh, collaborating in our destruction. They're calling it uh, the Vichy uh, approach mm. to the union. So they have very serious difficulties to address. Pat's point of view is the point of view expressed by unionist moder moderates mm. in the Ulster Unionist Party. There are hardline unionists who think it's wrong. Can I ask you, and I'm not quite sure if the data is available on this, but but the those who identify as Northern Irish, um, do we know what they think about the future shape of Northern Ireland within a united Ireland? You know, does that sense of a Northern Irish identity extend to a desire to keep Northern Ireland as an entity in a future political dispensation? We, we can't answer that question on the basis of this year's data. It's one for next year. It's, 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 it's quite possible. What we can answer if you want to shift to this is general preferences over whether there should be a new constitution in the mm. Republic in the event of change and possibly also look at questions of um, procedures to change flags and anthems. So tell us about the, the constitution. So we decided this year not to repeat questions about whether you preferred a devolved um, Northern Ireland to persist in United Ireland or to have an integrated Ireland. 
Instead, we, we simply addressed the question of whether people favoured a new constitution in the event of Irish unification. And we gave respondents, north and south, three preferences. Um, either a brand new constitution decided at a, at a constitutional convention, or amending the existing Irish uh, constitution to facilitate unification, or keeping the constitution as is, as was originally envisaged by Eamon de Valera, and applying it to United Ireland. Now, although that uh, technically might be a problem for incorporating a, a devolved executive, we wanted to give people a very simple uh, choice to see if they, they had strong views. And the Republic's population, broadly speaking, splits three ways, uh, with the highest group in favour of a, a new constitution, those least in favour of constitutional change and keeping the constitution as it is are Fianna Fáil voters in the south and um, Sinn Féin, southern Sinn Féin voters. If we go north, um, what's interesting is that although there are significant numbers of don't knows or, um, yeah, significant numbers of, of don't knows among northern Protestants and the northern others, they generally favour a brand new constitution. The most in favour of a brand new constitution are the SDLP in the north, but they're followed by the, um, the Alliance Party and the, and the Unionist parties. So clearly the idea of a fresh start has greater appeal in the north uh, than it does in the south. Now, it's fair enough to mm -hmm. ask, do, you know, do people know the details of the Irish constitution when they're answering this question? Do they know how the preface begins? Uh, do they know the extent to which the constitution has been radically amended, uh, particularly since um, the 1990s? Um, I can't answer that. So we're, we're broadly speaking, it, the question possible is... possible that there's a, a symbolic it's, element it's, to that too, in the same as with flags and Again, it's very symbolic. And, and the absence of updating of information, I suspect... Uh, the more northern unionist and more northern Protestant are, you are, the less likely you've updated yourself on the Irish constitution. Well, that's just about the but most holy trinity isn't going to appeal very much either. I, I, you could see that. You could see that sticking in the craw of some God-fearing brethren uh, or, or Unitarian. Or, but uh, but but it is also one of these questions that works at the two levels, in its specific, but also uh, in 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 the general sense as a pointer to. At general attitudes in the south, and I was I was surprised at the extent to which people in the south were in favour of a new constitution. I mean, I think it was you'll correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, but I think it was about twenty percent in the south wanted no change oh, yeah, at all, and there was yeah. about two thirds of voters in the south who so were that's willing different to from flags and a new conversation. That's more open to change than on the flags and anthems, is it? I think is that correct? It's well, more open to change on last year's flags and anthems question, mm -hmm. but we have questions on flags and anthems this year as well, in which the question was very, I think, fair to say, kind of carefully formulated. It was a, it was a very long question. Uh, I'm, happy, anyway. I'm happy to go through it, if you, if you don't mind. I, oh, please do. So, so we deliberately decided to set up, to set up a procedure by by which we wanted to test people's willingness to accept the idea of change. Not, not even accept change, just the idea that change might happen. We posed to them the possibility that the All-Ireland 
Parliament's committee would convene experts on the cultural heritage of all peoples on the island in all their diversity. They would entertain proposed changes to the flag and the anthem proposed by musicians, poets and artists. But there would be no change to the existing flag and anthem unless the committee's proposal went to referendum and was endorsed by a majority of the people. So you'll notice that we put in, into that a veto for the, on the possibility of change. Mm -hmm. And because of the size of the republic in a united Ireland, in effect, the veto would be held by the people of the republic. Mm -hmm. So it, it was uh, a question which tested willingness to be flexible. And we found that there was some uh, willingness to be flexible. Uh, it, it, it still remained the case that in the South, those who um, disagreed with the idea of change was about 30%. The same, uh, roughly the same, it was 29% agreed uh, with the possibility of change. Um, but the rest were in, they'd like to hear more about the idea or don't know. So we interpret this as, at least by comparison with the answers given last year, that people are willing to contemplate a process of change to address these questions. But I think it would be fair to say they don't like the idea of the flag and anthem being changed without direct consultation with the people on these, on these questions. So um, in the North, um, it was clear that those who uh, liked this possibility uh, were quite strong among Northern Catholics, Northern Sinn Féin voters, Northern SDLP voters, and even uh, unionists, um, particularly hardline unionists, seem to like this idea. So if you are interested in increasing losers' consent, this type of procedural approach appears to have some kind of mileage. So there's more of this, as, the, as this project develops, there's more of this type of measurement going on, which is about measuring openness as much as about its measuring fixed positions. Exactly. That's indeed right, Hugh. And at the end of um, January, we will be publishing, and the Irish Times will be publishing, sorry, um, the results of a series of experiments that we have conducted um, that are uh, largely focused on these symbolic questions. Now, the, the idea of experiments might convey the impression that O'Leary and Gary and Poe will be dressed in white coats and will be putting electrodes into people's brains. Um, well, well, electrodes <laughs> might help at some point in yeah, this process. Right. Instead, what we're, we're broadly doing is giving people accurate, truthful accounts of, say, something like the Commonwealth and giving them, giving half the sample of respondents one correct framing of the Commonwealth. And we give the other sample uh, an equally correct but different framing of the Commonwealth to see if the framing effects are strong or not. Mm -hmm. So sometimes framing effects make no difference. Um, people have very strong views on certain subjects and it doesn't matter how you present the subject to them. So what we'll be checking is uh, the extent to which framing matters, because that will give us some idea of people's flexibility on these matters. So the project as it goes forward now, there's, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, there are, there are two things. There are some 
data points which you'll be checking every year for a movement right. up and down over at least the next two years. Is yes. that, that, that correct? And then there are these experiments, for want of a better word, exploring I suppose, right. the deeper psychological undercurrents underneath some of these yes. positions and, and beliefs. Yes, and we also hope to have the funding to do two deliberative forums, north and south, um, which are miniature citizens' assemblies. And we haven't quite yet decided what the topics for those will be. They won't cover everything. Um, and we would like to do that north and south and then convene one for the whole island. And that's going to raise all sorts of um, logistical questions that I haven't got my head around. You know, Is everybody going to be willing to go to Athlone? Uh, is everybody willing to go to Armagh? Um, how do you how do you pay for it all? Um, mm. But that's the ambition. And citizens' assemblies tend to go on for quite a long time, don't they? They, 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 they quite, do. Quite a there'll be quite a demand right. on people. But these are miniature um, mm. deliberative forums. They're intended to be broadly representative of the population, but they're not as they, they. We wouldn't be hoping to assemble a thousand people. And are we talking about a similar sort of approach, a structure, expert briefings, exactly. you know, debates that people can, you exactly. know, ask for data, those kinds of things? Right. Yeah. And we'd, we'd keep people's identities anonymous, but people could read the transcripts. We, we would see people deliberating at small tables, um, and they would each have um, a representative from one of the survey organizations queuing them with questions, but broadly letting them engage with one another. It is, this is an enormous project, what Irons is doing generally, isn't it? It's uh, well, the ambition is growing uh, mm. we, since we started. Uh, yes, uh, what we would like to do is to continue our own independent work, uh, but we also would very much appreciate it if, if this government or future Irish governments began to do this kind of work as well. I mean, it isn't operating in a vacuum, apart from just the general political landscape which is out there. There's the government's shared island initiative. Indeed. There's, there's, there are other um, political or quasi-political initiatives at play there. So you're right. conscious of those, obviously. Absolutely. But, but your own independence, I presume, is, is, is also important. Yeah, we want to be rigorous social scientists while uh, engaging in the, some of the most fundamental questions of the next couple of decades. Well, it remains fascinating. So thank you very much for, for coming in today, Brandon. Thank you, Hugh. And thanks also to Pat. Um, thanks to our producer, John Casey. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed at the end of the week. But until then, thank you very much for listening.